This is Startup Renegades, a raw conversation with founders, entrepreneurs, and the unicorns among us who have taken their idea and turned it into a thriving, profitable brand. I'm your host, Shauna Armitage, and my work as a fractional marketing director has led me to connect with dozens and dozens of founders in all stages of their startup journeys. Whether they're bootstrapping or fundraising or have capital on hand, there's one big question founders always ask, how do I grow this thing? On Startup Renegades, we'll explore how they did it, and you'll walk away with actionable steps you can take on your own journey to scalable growth. Hey, Renegades. Have you ever heard of Truebill or Rocket Money? Well, today I'm going to introduce you to one of the co-founders, Yaya Maktardzada. Now, before co-founding Truebill, Yaya served as vice president of business development at Nanigans, where he helped grow the company from less than $1 million to over $20 million in run rate. Yaya, who you may recognize from Truebill's television commercials, enjoys helping early stage startups determine go-to-market strategy, find product market fit, and scale businesses for success. And he's going to talk about all of that in our episode today. He's a passionate startup growth advisor who was integral to the original company, Truebill, being bought by Rocket Companies for $1.275 billion. He talks a little bit about how unicorn status just hits you, which I found amazing. And he continues to serve as the CRO at Truebill, which is now Rocket Money. So make sure that you go check out Rocket Money today. But listen in to Yahya's journey and the very specific strategies and small steps he took in listening to customers along the way to take this company from this small company that he and his brothers built while trying to solve a problem for their family and friends to this amazing startup that has now surpassed unicorn status. This is Yahya's story and the story of Truebill. Hey, Yahya, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here. I'm so excited. I am a emerging fintech founder, right? So I have so much to learn from you, but I'm really, really thrilled just to hear about your journey. So I have to ask my big opening question that really stumps a lot of people, which I kind of love. What did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. And, you know, I think that's because I was always just. I don't want to say argumentative, but at least I debated everything and everything was always a negotiation. And my parents would always say, oh, you know, someday you'll be a great lawyer. And I just sort of internalized it and assumed that's the way things were meant to be. I feel that in my soul, but nobody ever told me to be a lawyer. I think they probably said something else. So what kind of direction did your early career take? So I have uh, three brothers and we were always starting companies together. And by companies, I mean a lemonade stand that became a lawn mowing business, which in the summer, which in the winter would be a snow shoveling business, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We were all just, I sold candy bars at school. I was always just looking to start businesses to make money. As we got older, our schemes kind of became a little bit more sophisticated. And we started a company called FreeWebs, which was a create your own website, sort of like Squarespace uh, type site. Okay. That became webs.com. And right when I was graduating college, it was actually kind of taking off. And so right around the time that I graduated, FreeWebs or Webs was raising its Series A or had just raised the Series A. And so I immediately moved out to San Francisco to open the West Coast office for that. So wait, you were raising a Series A at what point? 
Well, my older brothers, one was in law school and one was not in school, but they both graduated college. And I was a senior in college when Webbs was doing its Series A. That's pretty impressive. We're not even talking about pre-seed here. Like, I have this great idea. Help me get it off the ground. You're talking Series A. That's a big accomplishment. I have to give the credit on that one to my older brothers. You know, we were growing up in Maryland. We had no idea what venture funding was or any of that. You know, to us, it was if you want to start a business, you took a loan from the bank or you saved up money and did it. But we really bootstrapped the whole thing from one server in my brother's closet to scaling it up to tens of millions of users over time. But at the time of the Series A, you know, it was profitable. It was growing. It was producing millions of dollars of revenue. And we got connected with someone who said, hey, you should go out and raise, raise funding for this. And he sort of mentored us on how to set up VC meetings, pitch, and ultimately raise. This is all amazing. I have to backtrack a little bit. You were a senior in college when this all was happening. What did you go to college for? What were you aspiring to do before this really took off? And you're like, well, this is what I'm going to do with myself. Even at that point, I was still thinking about law school. So I was majoring in political science and philosophy. I was in Maryland, which is right next to DC. So I thought either law school or job in the government was what it was going to be. And then, you know, it was kind of fortuitous as I was graduating, this this company was becoming a real thing through kind of fortunate circumstance. I went into that full time and that sort of kicked off my immersion into kind of the tech scene in San Francisco. Okay, great. So you were thinking about going into law school. How did you fit into this emerging company? Did you have more of a tech background? Were you doing the kind of the law side of the startup? No, I was, you know, I think I was hugely underqualified, but I was running business development. So it was a pretty big consumer site at that point. We had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of websites being created by people all over the world. And so I went out and did partnerships with companies like, I'm going to name a bunch of antiquated companies that are not around anymore, but with companies like Slide <laughs> or RockU or even YouTube, actually. So I was doing leading partnerships there. I was um, meeting with ad agencies and different advertisers trying to monetize the site. And really just being sort of the West Coast presence for this this website that was actually pretty big at the time. Okay, awesome. So tell me a little bit about what happened with this company and how it led you to the next step. So yeah, so that was really my full immersion course into all things tech. I left after a couple of years. I went to do another startup called Nanigans, which was ad tech, which ended up being just one of the most fortunate things I've done. I spent five years in marketing tech, which came super in handy in Truebill. Also, Nanigans, it grew really quickly and came crashing down equally quickly. And there was a lot of lessons to be learned there. So Web sold right at the end of 2011. Nanigans, I worked at until 2015. And so in 2015, I had left Nanigans. I was not working. My brothers were not working. And we sort of said, hey, let's get the band back together and take another shot at this. And that's okay. when Truebill was born. Okay, again, I want to back up because you're saying so many interesting things. You said there was a lot of lessons learned from that other company. Can you share some of those lessons? Yeah, wow, there's a lot. Okay, so I think the biggest takeaway is building a company is freaking tough. And there's going to be a lot of unforced errors. You don't need sort of errors you force yourself compounding on those. So for instance, you know, one of the big mistakes is we brought on, we made a few bad decisions in terms of uh, managers or executives, right? And instead of rectifying those immediately, we spent a lot of time maybe trying to coach the people or trying to get it to work out or hoping it would turn out okay, or just avoiding the pain of fixing the mistakes we, we had made. And, you know, a bad hire or a bad leader in a company can be devastating. And 
the longer that person is there, the more that mistake compounds itself. So that was a big one, sort of really learning to not have a tolerance for bad decisions and learning that while it's painful, you really have to, like when you do make a mistake, you have to pounce on it and fix it immediately. Even now I say it's fine to make mistakes. It's not fine to let mistakes persist. Yeah, that's really important. I'm glad that you shared that. So you've learned some really important lessons and now the gang's back together and you're moving on. What is the big problem in the world that you're about to solve? So with Truebill, we started Truebill with a really specific small pain point, which was just that more and more things were moving to subscription, more and more like of the money we spend was being automated in subscriptions. And there was just no easy way to keep track of it. And I think it's, it's a pain point that everyone can relate to in that like, you know, you sign up for your free trial or something, you forgot about it. And then three or six or 12 months later, you realize you've been paying for this thing all year. So that's what we built. And to be honest, I never thought there was a big company to be built on that. We just said, you know, let's just start hacking together some projects just to get our own creativity flowing. And so the first thing we built, or rather for Truebill, the first thing we built was just this really simple algorithm that you would connect your bank accounts and credit cards, and it would scan your transactions and show you your subscriptions. We built that in a couple of days and sent it to friends and family. And it just seemed like everyone we sent it to was finding things they either didn't know they had or had forgotten about or just didn't want anymore. And people were sharing it. So after a couple of weeks, it was getting, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 signups a day, which today we do a thousand times that. But at the time, you know, that meant that someone out there was finding this thing useful. I don't know that I thought there was a business there at the time, but at least it was interesting enough that we sort of said, okay, like, where do we go from here? And we just sort of spent the next couple of years incrementally adding small features to build it into what it is today, which I think is just the best holistic platform to run your finances. That's amazing. And I love the transparency there. Like, hey, we had a cool business idea, but at no point did I think that this was like a legitimate, you know, long-term high growth business. Was there a point where it clicked for you? Like, oh shit, this is actually something big and we need to move on it. Yeah. So when we wanted to start the company, the first thing we did was, you know, we got back together in my brother's basement and we got a whiteboard and we sat there and tried to come up with what we thought could be a billion dollar idea. Mm -hmm. And we came up with nothing. It took about two weeks for me to realize like, that's not, at least for us, that's not how you start a company or how you come up with an idea. Like you can't just sit around and dream up something big. You really have to start building, start creating. And from that, you'll get inspiration, you'll get feedback. And like, it's a process of evolution rather than of like all at once creation. Even when we had that simple subscription tracker, I didn't think there was a business there. I just thought it was like a cool project to continue working on until we had a good idea. The next thing we added was we added a button that would let you cancel subscriptions with one click. So obviously seeing you have a subscription that you don't want sucks, but what's even worse is waiting on hold for 20 minutes and then arguing with someone on the phone to cancel it. So we said, all right, let's get rid of that pain point. And we added that. And it wasn't until we got to about 500 users that I sort of started seeing at least a glimmer potential in the business. And what happened was at 500 users, we sort of had enough data to start like combing through it and like extracting insights. And I think I was just struck by the amount of inefficiency that people have in their finances. So I said, you know what, like this is not a subscription tracking and canceling business. This is a business that's going to eliminate financial inefficiency entirely at least even saying that it sounds like something that could be valuable. And so that's when I said, all right, like, let's go for this. And so it was with that vision that we went out and raised a seed round. We added some small functionality, like things like bank fee refunds, where 
if we saw your bank charge you an overdraft fee or late fee, we would automatically reach out to the bank and request a refund. And I think that was successful about 40% of the time, but it was always a nice surprise for people when it came through. And that was the vision that we kept for, I think, about a year and a half after that. And then we had another sort of expanding a vision again, where I said, you know what, this isn't a company about eliminating financial inefficiency. This is just going to be the best platform for your finances, period. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so much to take from all of that. And I really heard you talking about this 500 users mark and how just the data was coming in and you could really see some trends and learn and grow from that. I want to ask you or switch focus a little bit to strategy because that's always seems to be the hardest part for founders is really getting strategic, right? There's so many things out there. There's ads, there's social media, there's email marketing. What did you guys do early on to actually really grow your user base? Mm -hmm. What did you do to get from friends and family to 500 users? That was really just referrals and word of mouth. We launched on Product Hunt. That took us from about 500 to 3,000 users. I think we had like the second biggest Product Hunt campaign of the year. And then from there, the next thing we did was we did a massive PR push. And we did that ourselves. Like We debated going through a PR agency or doing it ourselves. And what I've learned is if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. And that took us from about 3,000 to 30,000 users. So the track from zero to 30,000 was pretty quick. And then we hit a wall. So zero to 30,000 took maybe three months. And then 30,000 to 35,000 took another probably, you know, two months. And so that was painful. And I think, you know, after stumbling around for a while, trying to figure out like how to unlock growth, we did something that put us on the right track. And that was that we took a pause and just invested in building out tracking to a maniacal degree where Mm -hmm. we had tracking and attribution on every user that came in. And not just on a sign-up basis, but on an engagement and a retention basis, and then ultimately an LTV basis. And then once we were able to very, very accurately track, attribute, measure, and quantify the value of every user, that's when we could start being really methodical about going out and like testing every different growth channel under the sun and like backing it out into like a concrete ROI basis. Okay, so I've got two big follow-up questions here. You talked about needing to do PR right. So you did it yourself and you saw a huge increase in your users from those PR campaigns. What did you do? How did you find the right people to reach out to? What was the message? How did you do that so effectively? Yeah. So I signed up for, um, it was called go PR it. And that gives you this giant list of like every reporter. And then I just hit Google and I started like searching for articles with any keyword that could be money. Like personal finance, money, refunds, subscriptions, right? Those were words that were relevant to what we were building. And so I made this huge list of every reporter who had written about personal finance or startups or fintech or anything tangentially related to us. And then what I did was I got all their Twitters and I didn't immediately reach out to them and say, hey, please write about us because reporters hate that. But I started like commenting on their Twitter posts. I started emailing them saying things like, hey, I read this article, you know, really enjoy this article that you wrote. Here's a quick thought or here's a quick thing you may want to look at next or something like that, right? Try to like do anything to engage with them aside from get them to write about Truebill. 
And then finally, after doing that for a couple of weeks, I started sending them just a quick blurb, like a two, three sentence. Hey, like I just started this company. Here's what we're doing. Here's why it's interesting. I'd love to talk. And I must have done that with hundreds of reporters and PR flows upwards. So what happens is, you know, at the start, really small sort of blogs or just smaller online publications will pick up the story and write about you. And then larger outlets will pick that up and they'll reach out and they'll cover you. And then it goes out on TV and you'll get like local TV stations will pick up, we'll do a segment on it. And then that gets syndicated by their like national affiliates. And then eventually we got to the point where we had a segment on us on NBC Nightly News, which is like the largest news program in America. The thing about PR is it's great to get your company off the ground, like from zero to 30,000 is great. But then two things happen. One, the story becomes old. And so it's not going to get you from 30,000 to 300,000. And two, it doesn't scale. You know, when TechCrunch wrote about us, we would get, let's say like four or 500 signups that day, which was great because if we had a thousand, I was like, wow, we grew 40% today. But now today, you know, if we're getting 20,000 signups a day and TechCrunch writes about us, it's like, hey, we grew an extra 1% today. That's, that doesn't really move the needle, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think companies really overinvest in PR in the mid and late stages. It's a great tool for getting your company off the ground. But after that, it's not going to move the needle. Like you're much better off focusing on channels that one, you can control your own destiny and two channels that can scale. It's Shauna here. I want to take a quick break from this amazing episode to send a free resource your way. Starting up is hard. Whether you're bootstrapping or you've got some funding behind you, you don't always know exactly where to start. I want to fix that. You head to startuprenegades.com right now. You can claim your free business benchmark blueprint. That's a mouthful. It's going to help you set a plan in place so you can create your foundation for growth. And it's free. So why not? Head to startuprenegades.com right now and grab yours. Okay, perfect segue. So you had said, you know, you were able to really test with all of these channels to find out what was the most effective at that point. So after doing all of that testing and getting all of that data, what channels were you finding were most effective for Truebill? So effective is, it's an interesting way of putting it, right? Because when you're doing performance advertising, basically you come up with a return on ad spend threshold that, that's your minimum, right? So you, you're going to say something like, if you're doing it right, at least, you're going to say, okay, so for every dollar I spend, I need to make $2 back over 12 months. That two to one is a good ratio for startup. And so anywhere you spend money is going to be hitting that two to one ratio. Otherwise you wouldn't be spending there, right? The real question becomes how much volume can you get from an individual channel while still getting that two to one ratio. And I'm going to nerd out for a second here, but when you're buying ads online, there's basically reverse laws of economics or reverse laws of buying of bulk buying, right? So if I go to a normal store and I buy in bulk, I save money. With ads, the more you buy from a given channel, the more expensive it gets, which is kind of the opposite of, of the rest of the world. So the way you measure a channel is actually not in terms of like efficiency, because all your channels are going to be at that same efficiency. What varies channel by channel is how much volume you can get from each channel. I know that was a bit of a rabbit hole, but... Um, no, I appreciate their nerding out very much so. Go ahead. Yeah. Like every company out there or most, you know, we started with Facebook and Instagram just because it's easy to do. There is infinite volume or near infinite volume, and it's just a great proving ground and testing ground. And what happens is you put out your ads and you are losing money. You sort of have months where you're spending one or $200 a day knowing you're losing half of that just to 
tune your ads, tune your creative strategy, tune your targeting and improve your product. And then eventually what happens, hopefully, is you see that return on ad spend go from, you know, 50% to 100% to 130%, and then finally to say 200%. And then that's when you can unlock and you go and you raise a big round of funding and you say, look, for every dollar we put into marketing, we get $2 back, give me, you know, $20 million so I can really accelerate. And that's sort of when a startup goes vertical. I'm really, really glad that you shared that because I think that a lot of people, small business owners and startup founders alike, go in with this mindset of, you know, well, I have been spending money on Facebook ads for the past seven days and I'm not seeing a return on ad spend. Like I just have to kill it because clearly it doesn't work. And they're not thinking about it as a test, right? You're testing all of the things to find out what works until you get that return. And then you can increase that return. I think that's so important for people to hear because no strategy is usually a home run the first time around. You really have to be willing to test and try. And that does mean losing some of your budget without getting results right away. Right, exactly. I mean, here's the thing for ads to work, right? I mean, it's going to take you months to hone your creative strategy to something that actually people want to click on, right? Mm -hmm. On top of that, every time you like pause and restart your ads, the Facebook algorithm goes nuts. And like, the data you're going to get back in the next couple of days after restarting ads is not reliable data. It's reliable data, but it's not data that's guaranteed to persist. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in that it's best on to just keep a steady stream of users coming in, even at a small budget, because you also need those users in that volume to iterate on your product with, right? So as you're, you know, you should be constantly testing your sign-up buttons, your premium conversion buttons, your different screens, the layout of the pages in your app or in your website, right? And you need a flow of users and a flow of data to be able to like make iterations on those. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. Thank you for sharing all of that marketing and growth guidance. I love nerding out. It's my favorite thing to talk about. But let's talk about Truebill because you guys have come a long way. Talk to me a little bit about what happened with the company. So yeah, we launched right at the start of 2016. And the first year and a half was just a dark, depressing, stressful time in that, or I should say the first three months were great. We went from zero to 30,000 users. And then I think the next 15 months, we went from 30,000 to 50,000 users or something. It was tough and it was painful. We made a lot of bets and threw a lot of things against the wall and not many stuck until one did stick. And when it did, it was just, a you know, there was a glimmer of hope for the business. We were almost out of funding. We'd raised 2.7 million in seed funding. We were down to our last... 300k and we're burning about 100k a month so we had three months left of keeping the lights on and making payroll and we made a bet and it worked and it gave us a glimmer of hope and that helped us go out and raise another 500k which meant five more months of runway and at the end of that five months we went out we were fortunate enough to raise a series a so we raised five million and then back to back to back to back the company just went vertical so we raised so we raised five million series a 15 series b 17 series c 45 series d So it all went really quickly after that. And then six months after that, we were acquired. That's a pretty fast timeline. So talk to me about the acquisition. We're looking at raising a $100 million round and really going big. And, you know, we've achieved that unicorn valuation. And as part of that, I said, you know what, let me just sort of, a few people had reached out saying, if you ever want to do another round, we'd either love to participate or do an acquisition. Mm -hmm. And so I pinged a few parties and said, hey, you know, we're going to do this big round. Obviously, if we do that, the price tag for an acquisition goes way up. So if you want to make a move, now's the time. 
and then uh you know they said okay well what number are you expecting and we said we're expecting north of a billion dollars and they said that's crazy because six months ago you raised at 500 million and six months before <laughs> that you raised at uh at 200 million and i said yeah in six months from now we're going to be at three billion so you missed the 200 you missed the 500 but um now you can make a move or you can get stuck on that and uh we talked to a few different companies and ultimately we ended up joining rocket companies which is known for rocket mortgage Mm -hmm. We met the team there and just the shared vision, shared sort of goals and synergy in the potential product that we could build as a combined entity made the most sense. And we end up, instead of raising money, uh, joining with them to try to go big in a different way. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing the journey and your strategies today. Yaya, can you tell me what being a startup renegade means to you? I think it means doing things in a faster, more agile, more lightweight way than has occurred to anyone else. Yeah. And so what I mean by that is one of the things Truebill does today, for instance, is we will cancel your subscription with one click. So you're like, okay, I don't want Netflix anymore. And well, Netflix is easy to cancel, but let's say you, you say, I don't want New York Times anymore. You click the cancel button and we do it for you. And we've automated the cancellation of got to be north of a thousand different services where mm-hmm. you know we have some sort of automated process that can do that with no human input. But you know, six years ago, we didn't have anything close to that. And so when we wanted to add the ability to cancel subscriptions, I went out and hired a couple people who sat, well, first I did it myself, right? So every day I'd spend a few hours literally calling up different services and saying, hi, this is John Smith from Ohio. I want to cancel this service. <laughs> and then when I couldn't do that anymore, I hired people to do it. And we had a whole team of people who would just sit there and cancel subscriptions all day. Obviously, that's not scalable. That's not something you want to do forever. But it's, I think it, that captures being a startup renegade in that like, you're starting with like, what's the pain point that people have? What's the product people want? And let me get it out there and see what happens yeah. before I spend a million dollars building it or before I spend $10 million building that actual product. How can I fake it to validate the market and to understand the need and to understand what the product needs to be before I actually like invest in the heavy lifting of building it? Yeah, I love that so much. Thank you. So can you tell everybody where they can find you online? Sure. Well, firstly, check out rocketmoney.com. I failed to mention that we actually rebranded the company to Rocket Money. So that's important. People still, yeah, <laughs> people still think of it as true, but it's all it's Rocket Money now. So definitely check out either the website or the app. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't tweet, but I share thoughts on Instagram as well sometimes at, at Yaya M. All right. Thanks so much for being here, Yaya. Thank you. That was this week's episode of Startup Renegades. Thank you so much for joining me and soaking up all that brilliant entrepreneurial knowledge from today's guest. If you want to suggest a founder for a future episode or just want to connect, you can find me on Instagram at shauna.armitage. That's S-H-A-U-N-A dot A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And just a little reminder, if you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. It makes a huge difference and it's so important for helping the show thrive. I'll be here same time next Tuesday for a raw, honest conversation with another startup renegade.